The Afterburn Podcast is a proud supporter of Guns Gear Memorial Foundation, helping our veterans and their families when they need it most. To learn more, visit gunsgarin.com slash rain. Want to make a podcast? Let me tell you about Spotify's program for podcasters, and it's called Spotify for Podcasters. I've been using it for over a year now. Couldn't be happier from the switch. You can record wherever you create podcasts, whether it be your phone, computer, and it's easy to upload it and distribute it to everywhere podcasts are heard. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. Best of all, Spotify for Podcasters is completely free. So launch your podcast today. Get started with Spotify for Podcasters. Go to www.spotify.com backslash podcasters to get started. You're listening to the Afterburn Podcast, episode number 25. Altitude. Altitude. Tower 6, hey, thanks for listening to the podcast. My guest today is retired Air Force Lieutenant Colonel Les Dyer. He has flown the C-7, the B-52, the T-38, the Hawk, the SR-71, and the A-10. He's forgotten more about aviation than I will ever know. And I definitely school her out when we talk about the SR-71 today. So I hope you enjoy listening to his episode. Before we get rolling into the podcast, just a few admin notes. I would like to thank all those who have swung over to iTunes. They've left a rating and a review. Just hitting that five star and then going down and leaving even a one word comment helps the podcast grow. So I appreciate you doing that. Also like to thank all my Patreon supporters. So that's growing, trying to bring more content. There is some afterburn swag that is rolling in and will be released here very shortly so if you're interested in supporting the podcast and getting some swag and also just some either the uncut episodes the early releases or jumping to the front of the line for the new question and answer series that i'm rolling out swing over to patreon.com backslash the afterburn podcast you can find all of that on the afterburnpodcast.com So plenty of links to go there, as well as some additional content for all the podcast listeners. Again, theafterburnpodcast.com, and you can find links to everything I've just rambled on about. Let's get an episode today with Lieutenant Colonel Les Dyer. Well, sir, Les, thank you for joining me on the podcast. Excited to have you on here and hear a little bit about your aviation career and journey because it's quite storied. Delighted to be here, Rain. Well, sir, if you wouldn't mind, just tell me if you do like the 30 second elevator pitch, kind of a snapshot, if you can, of your career, what you flew and what you're doing today. Okay. Let me start back in high school. Uh, Dad was an Air Force pilot. Uh, He'd come home every night with a smile on his face. He and mom would sit down for a martini and the smile never left his face. So I don't think I thought about it, you know, actively at age 14 to 18 or whatever it was in those days, but it just, it was a thing that I was going to do. So, you know, just sort of flowed, uh, uh, was lucky and got an appointment to the Air Force Academy, graduated from there in uh, 69 and then set off. It was uh, going hard and doing nothing but flying jets from then on. Chronologically, C-7s, B-52s, 
T-38s, Hawks, SR-71s, and A-10s. It's quite quite a career, and it's fascinating to me just the number of aircraft that you flew. What was it like going through at that time and graduating the Air Force Academy up to the wars going on? Imagine that was definitely the forefront of your mind. Yeah, uh, of course. At age uh, 22, we're bulletproof and invulnerable. So, you know, going off to Southeast Asia, you know, didn't really, you didn't think about anything other than, well, okay, I'm going to the war, and that's that's what I got trained to do, and uh, here I come. So, you know, flying over Hanoi and getting a few uh, SA, you know, two shot at you was uh, not a big deal at age 23, 24. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite a different perspective. I imagine that would change today if you if you went back. That's for sure. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. <laughs> what was a day in the life of, you know, flying around Vietnam? Uh, beautiful country. Absolutely beautiful. I wish I could have enjoyed the scenery a little bit more, you know. <laughs> Unfortunately, a whole lot of uh, 20-foot wide craters that were made by uh, 500-pounders, you know, being dropped in the jungle and wherever else. But uh, it was, uh, I was at Cameron Bay, which is a uh, which was a beach base. Absolutely gorgeous sea and uh, sandy beaches. But uh Days are fairly busy. When you were a trash hauler, you probably flew, you know, 10, 12 hour days most times, seven or eight sorties uh, in and out of small special forces and uh, you know, army camps like that, moving people and supplies. Uh, so the year went quickly. It was not uh, not slow at all. Yeah, no, that's pretty, that's fascinating to me. But you eventually transitioned into a little bit faster pointy nose aircraft. What was the transition like going from the C-7? I know you said that the tweet was in between there, right? No, it was a C-7, then the buff, Okay. then then T-38. So going to the buff then, what was your assignment like in the buff? Uh, probably my least enjoyed flying assignment because, <laughs> not so much because of the jet, but because the the, uh, the missions were, were long and tended to have a lot of boring twiddle your thumb times, you know. Uh, two pilots up there, one of you flying, obviously, and uh, it uh, it just, they were long, uh, particularly the ones flying out of Guam to Vietnam and back. And we're talking a 12-hour mission, normally took off in late evening in Guam, came back and the sun was rising in your face uh, as you headed back uh, eastbound. And so yeah. been in a three ship and uh, had the lead navigator call out and everybody in the other two airplanes was asleep. Oh man. Oh man. <laughs> but probably, I mean, that tempo that you guys were doing those long flights, I'm sure you were flying several times a week that, I mean, that wears on the body. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, once again, I'll go back to the age thing at uh, 24, 25, you know, you're pretty resilient. Uh, thought you were pretty tough, even if you weren't, but uh, yeah, it, uh, it got to you. It got, it got, got to us so badly that uh, Connie came over and uh, we got an apartment on Guam and she stayed for one of the, one of the tours. No kidding. Yeah. How often were you flying missions when you were at Guam? I think we probably averaged three a week. And yeah. that's, that's, that's remembering back, but about that. Wow. Yeah. I imagine it's just, it's a completely different world and a completely different, you know, time frame compared to what I think most guys are doing today or maybe, I don't know, maybe not, but that is fascinating to me. Um, I think probably the best thing, at least from my viewpoint, and I, I expect you would share it, although you didn't see that, Vietnam era was the fact that uh, people are so good to you now. People, uh, you know, thank you for your service and stuff like that. That that wasn't around in the old days. <laughs> yeah, I, I you know I can only you know see what has been on TV or what you read about or talking to veterans from that time period, and obviously it is a polar opposite of what you experienced coming back from Vietnam. You know, today I mean people are buying you meals when they see you in uniform at a restaurant, always thanking you for your service. 
uh, it, you know, if it somehow find out that you served, I think in the past, like three days, I've had people thank me for my service. So, um, I can't imagine serving in a time period, right? Where you're going through a lot of hard stuff and then you come back to a thankless nation and, and really looked down upon by a lot of, like a lot of the populace. Yeah. And of course it obviously wasn't everybody was right. not like that by any stretch of the imagination, but it was, yeah, it, uh, it got to you a little bit. Yeah. I know that would have to wear. And so, I mean, with that, I mean, thanks for what you did. And obviously I think things got better throughout your career, but, your generation definitely had to deal with a lot of crap when it comes to that. Yeah. Things got, uh, you know, remarkably better, you know, towards the end of the career, especially once the Reagan years started to uh, come around, money was there available for, for the military and the stuff we needed. So uh, from, from that point on, things were sadly more upbeat. Right. <laughs> Did you just do the one assignment in the buff? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then onto the tweet to instruct, I assume. T thirty eight, yeah. T thirty, yeah. I don't know why I keep. I keep. Uh, that's one, right. One of the one of those trainers. One of those little things that flies around. And yeah, yeah it's, it's amazing I, we, to me we, that the T thirty eight won't be around much longer. We're going to have the T seven here before we know it. Yeah, I mean it's about time. Yeah, well, it's it's an old jet. The fact that you and I probably have flown the same T thirty eight is pretty pretty amazing. <laughs> when you think Remarkable. about that. Yeah, Remarkable. I'm trying. I have to go back and look at my logbook, but obviously I know I've flown several T thirty eights from the sixties, which you know those things are bent and crooked and. <laughs> it's impressive yeah. still flying and not only that the, the modifications i'm not sure i'd recognize the cockpit anymore you know with heads up and that sort of thing even even with an old jet like the the talon yeah it's obviously that's why i flew i flew the t-38c but i was maybe two years three years in trail of the t-38s you know when, when they went through the conversion um they completely completely different i mean the plane still flies the same but the hud's cheating for sure <laughs> well we got to get a you know approaching a fifth generation fighter in here to teach our new guys i mean you know learning on the 38 you know leads them with a big gap when they step into one of the you know the modern jets yeah that's what i think i mean you know flying the f-16 i think is a very easy jet to fly it's when it comes to employing it and all the different sensors and the the tactics that go along with it that's what becomes really challenging so having a an advanced trainer where you can you know manage multiple sensors and doing things like that. that that's that's what's needed to train for the next fight so i'm excited to see the t7 roll online i think it'll be a really good thing and again the 38 is a little little dated at this point <laughs> showing it's gray yeah but it's good it's a good jet um and i really this is what i want to get into and I, maybe i've been rushing it but the sr-71 like i'm fascinated with this aircraft, I was as a kid. I think it was Mustang and then the Blackbird were the two planes that I was just completely fascinated with. And you had the opportunity to fly the Blackbird. And I want to talk a little bit about that. What was, how was the transition into that? How did you land into the SR-71? And then we'll dig into it. Just to back up a few steps, the previous assignment was an exchange tour with the Brits flying the Hawk out of RAF Valley in Wales. Yeah. So I was over there trying to get into the SR program, and the SR program uh, basically involved a week-long interview back at Beale Air Force Base. So I had to make the trip to get from uh, to England, UK, back to, to Beale and uh, interview for the job and then see if uh, they thought I was acceptable. Anyway, I go to Milton Hall to uh, jump on a KC-135 to get back to Beale, and just so happens the SR squadron commander's uh, in the bar the night before I'm planning to leave. <laughs> so I got my interview from him yeah. at the bar over a couple of beers. So I, just, I kept the beer flowing for him, and it went fairly well there anyway. <laughs> That's awesome. 
Yeah, and then went back to, to Beale, and uh, they they put you in the simulator, fly in the T-38 uh, with a couple of the guys in the squadron and interview with the, with the big wigs and, and the folks, Stanaval and whatnot, and uh, did that for a week, and uh, they accepted me and uh, went there in the summer of, that would have been the summer of 81. Uh, long, long checkout program. Is it? You've got over 100 hours in the simulator before you fly your first operational mission. So it was almost the summer of the next year, summer of 87, before I went on my first operational tour to Kadena. No kidding. Yeah. Do you think flying the 38 and then the Hawk helped going into that transition and that flying interview or unrelated? Yeah, I got uh, being not current, but at least with a lot of T-38 hours, uh, the two sorties I flew there with the, with the squadron commander and, and the DO certainly helped me there because I flew it. I must say I flew a decent T-38, so, yeah. that, you know, that went well. Having multiple aircraft background, I think, probably helped as much as anything. I'd seen various missions, a, a couple different kinds of flying, so I could look, take a look at the simulator and adapt a little bit, uh, perhaps better than someone who was trying to get in, which we didn't see much of with only one or two aircraft behind them. Yeah, with... Um... The training, so 100 hours in the sim, you know, roughly a year, were you flying the T-38 as you went through that, or is there some kind of yeah, yeah, flying program associated with that training? Yeah, yeah. The 38 was just a companion training because once you got operational, you didn't do a whole lot of flying. Probably when you were gone uh, to Godino or Mildenhall, two sorties a week. Uh, and so the 38 was just to keep your flying skills up. We shared the 38 with our brethren in the U-2 who were just down the hall in the same building okay. and uh, flew interchangeably with the U-2 guys. And uh, so got a, got a lot of 38, 38 sorties. You get almost as much as you wanted 38 flying. Okay. So year of training and then you're out the door as an operational SR-71 pilot. Um, I've talked to a couple of U-2 buddies and that's you know the most experience I have with it. And some of the documentaries are out there. But you're still just talking about from a physiological standpoint and the gear you're wearing flying the SR-71, you're still wearing a space suit or a pressure suit, correct? Correct. Did you have to go through that same process of, you know, you would step very early prior to the sortie and breathe oxygen or is that a consideration and a factor too? No. Uh, and that was, we, we felt fortunate over our YouTube brothers and the fact that we did not have to pre-breathe 100% in the uh, SR normally refuel 15 to 20 minutes after takeoff at uh, obviously medium altitudes, 25, 27,000 feet. So you were hundred percent from the time you hooked up to the jet, went out to the SR, okay. went through the takeoff and refueling. So you had had the necessary pre-breathing before you climbed and accelerated and got to the point where your blood needed to be oxygenated. Yeah. So you, had to hit the tanker pretty much right after takeoff that 15 to 20 minute window. That's, that was a normal kind of operating procedure for the SR 71, correct? Yeah. The, the jet was a handful. If you lost a motor, uh, with full fuel. So we normally took off roughly a half fuel load. And if you had a, an engine failure or a problem, then it was a lot easier to handle the jet and get it back on the ground. So you take it off at, at half fuel. That meant that uh, you needed to hit a tanker fairly soon and uh, fill up the full tanks and uh, then climb and accelerate from there. Is this Not that there weren't full tank takeoffs. We did a few of those. And, okay. Uh, they, they were always interesting, but uh, they just meant it was a little bit 
a more tight lift on the ground when you had 80,000 pounds of fuel on the aircraft. <laughs> Love the one you're with. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I assume there's probably some good coordination that was going on between like the ops desk, you and the ground crew just on a normal day, right? Like if a tanker fell out, obviously that would impact the mission and that also dictate your, if you're taking on a full fuel load or was that not even consideration? Oh yeah, definitely. And uh, there were normally, when we had the 135s, we, we usually had at least one tanker spare. And then we got the KC-10, they carried, you know, so much more when we were using those that uh, wasn't necessary normally to have anything more than, you know, one ground spare or something. But the 135s always had a spare or two there, particularly, and definitely more for operational missions when you were, you know, going someplace that you needed, there was a higher headquarters mission, you needed to make sure you got the, uh, the offload and were able to complete the mission. Gotcha. Did the SR-71, did that leak a bunch of fluid and gas on the ground until it got up to altitude? Like a sieve. Did it? <laughs> like a sieve. Yeah. Kelly Johnson and those geniuses down at the Skunk Works designed the joints to expand once the uh, airplane heated up and seal itself nicely. And we started out with a sealant on all the joints in the aircraft on the ground, but it didn't last long. The fuel ate away at it in the atmosphere and the weather conditions and whatnot. So normally, you know, after a flight or two coming out of, uh, of maintenance, that, that was gone. And you sat there and if you had 80,000 pounds on board, it was squirting out like it was almost like it was a hose. 40,000 pounds dripped heavily had huge drip pans under the airplane and, you know, whatnot. But uh, <laughs> she got up and went speeding out, too, to heat it up, sealed up nicely, and uh, you didn't leak. <laughs> ah, that's Yeah, it's so wild. I mean, and it's truly impressive, like, the engineering feat that that plane was, especially in that time frame with what was available to design it. And if I had one of those white plastic slide rollers, I'd be moving it here and showing you what they designed it on. I mean, they didn't have a Cray computer that did five gazillion, you know, computations per second they did that on a white plastic slide rule you know and in a short period of time <laughs> yeah yeah that's it's wild to me so mind-boggling what man was able to accomplish so it's impressive I'd like to talk a little bit about let's just i mean from the ground to the tanker can i mention that once you're off the tanker you're up at altitude what does that climb profile look like and then what what is an average mission sortie, an operational mission sortie. Are you accelerating out to, and what are you doing? Uh, basically, we flew in multiples of two hours. Okay. If you if you refueled once the full tank, you'd go up, fly a supersonic loop, come back and land, and that'd be a two-hour sortie, plus or minus a few minutes. Any To put tankers out there in front of you, then you could multiply those two-hour supersonic legs as far as you wanted to go. I think the longest one I flew, which is certainly not – a close to a record in the SR was about eight hours. The, uh, the French would not unless overfly coming out of Mildenhall. So we had to go out around the Iberian Peninsula, coming through the Straits of Gibraltar, and then uh, overfly uh, areas there in the Mediterranean that we were interested in, and then back home the same way. So four or five refuelings, I can't remember whether it was four or five, on that particular sortie was my longest. But some of them, some of the guys flew Baltic missions out of Beale, and that was a long haul to get all the way to the Baltic and get back, even flying, you know, north over the poles. That's And I assume, obviously, you're having to drop down to altitude to get gas, meet up with the tanker, and then climbing back up. So it's a constant yo-yo up and down. 
Exactly. Yeah. And of course, tanker was operating at, you know, the 25 to 30,000 foot range. And, you know, you had to go down to slow down, come down, meet him, get the gas and then run the yo-yo acceleration, you know, all over again to get back up to speed and altitude. Were you refueling about 300 knots? Yeah, 300. It started in the 300 range. Unfortunately, that meant that heavyweight, as the gas came on, heavyweight SR usually ended up with one burner cracked, refueling and trying to get the tanker as he offloaded to go as fast as he can to continue to push up his speed. Often had to do what we called toboggan. Tanker pushed his nose over, accelerated as much as he could in a shallow descent and refuel that way until, you know, gas was passing and you got a little bit uh, uh, more operational and uh, as he did the same thing was going faster. I definitely can uh, appreciate the men burner F-16, especially at a high, high altitude, I'll do it with the air quotes, weighted down for combat. You usually tap and burner, which, and then you're like, am I being efficient here or am I, you know, am I doing more damage, but. Yeah, but you know, you got that asymmetry, you know, sticking in there. And of course, depending on whether your center line or the engines are farther apart makes a difference as well, as you well know. Yeah, having one engine that's aligned (laughs) down the center makes it probably a little bit easier than doing min AB with one motor or or both of them. What, how did the SR 71, how did it handle at those low speeds? I imagine it liked going fast. It did. And that, that was its regime and where it wanted to be. But if you had a lightweight uh, jet, uh, it handled very nicely. Uh, use a traffic pattern as as an example. Down in the, the low weights, uh, under say you know twenty thousand, it, it flew around the traffic pattern nicely. Uh, used the stick shaker coming around to do the final turn, standard <laughs> overhead, a little bit wider than an F sixteen, obviously, yeah, yeah. but uh, not a bad jet to fly at all. You know, hand, handled nicely. The the speed of it obviously is super impressive. I did go Mach 2.04 in the F-16. It was super uncomfortable, and I was glad to be done with it, but I had to do it. I couldn't quite get to 2.05. Um, <laughs> but that was nothing in the SR-71. So what it was designed to do. Uh, once again, uh, going back to Kelly Johnson and that uh, team of uh, super brains, it was designed to be uh, do 3+, plus, and that's where it wanted to be. Only jet I've ever been in, where you push the throttles up if you got low on gas because you went faster. The inlet system got more efficient. You used you know, less fuel to cover more distance. Yeah. Amazing. In itself. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine with any considerations flying up at that altitude and those speeds that was of concern, are you doing anything different? No, uh, it was a cerebral airplane. If I can use that term, yeah. uh, uh, speed and altitude, you were obviously particularly in the take area. You were trying to keep the aircraft uh, as steady as you could so that the cameras or the radar were functioning properly. And as a matter of fact, you couldn't go into an operational take area unless the autopilot stabilization was working. So, you know, that kept the, you know, the platform steady to take good pictures or good radar imagery, whatever you were getting. But uh, other than special considerations, obviously, you know, being at uh, 80,000 plus, (laughs) you don't want to be outside at that particular time. But, uh, you know, you always thought about where you were. (laughs) where the bad guys were, which way you had to do. If something went wrong, do I turn left or right? You know, if I get a, you know, unstart on this engine and I dip that way, I can't go too many miles or I'll be in trouble. Yeah. And obviously the calculus is, is quite different than most guys are concerned about with threats and where you can go based upon the fact that you're covering 25, 30 miles a minute. So it can put you in a spot very quickly that you might not want to be in. 
Yeah, and having, you know, fortunately I was hooked up with uh, the world's best uh, RSO, reconnaissance systems officer, your teammate in the back seat. And uh, this guy did all the work. You know, up front you just <laughs> get the point in going forward. And they had they had the threat systems, they had the cameras, they had the navigation, they had the radios. They did everything in the back seat. You know, up front it was just hang on to the stick and make sure the pointy end went straight. No big deal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so operationally, you flew at Mildenhall? And then, yeah, we had two two debts at Mildenhall and then the other one at Kadena. Okay. And did you did you Kadena or is it just Mildenhall? No, both. It's okay. Basically, norm, normally, and we kept... At almost all times, we had 10, 10 operational crews. Okay. You had two crews at each, each location, so there were four crews gone from home base uh, at any given time. Can you talk a little bit about your operational experience and some of the missions that uh, you kind of partake, partook on and like what a day in the life of Slash looked yeah, like? Yeah, let me pick out uh, a Murmansk sortie, which was probably the, the bread and butter of the Mildenhall operations. Sinklant uh, was a big user. He wanted to know where the, the subs were at any given time. So we'd run up that way and uh, and, and take pictures of Murmansk and the surrounding area. And uh, obviously had the, had the Ruskies over there on the, uh, you know, the east side of the situation and uh, yeah. keep an eye out for, you know, denied territory there. Bread and butter it out of Kadena, Okinawa was the uh, DMZ, the Korean DMZ. The powers that be over there wanted to know what the air order battle was or the ground order battle as well. And uh, so, up, you know, up and down the DMZ, was, uh, a typical mission would be uh, across the DMZ from west to east, loop the other side and come back and uh, do the same thing, come in the opposite direction. Yeah, I imagine those probably, yeah, four hour, six hour type missions. Four-ish was, was a standard for, for a double looper. I, as I said, one where you came down, got the second load of gas and went back up. You you couldn't get a whole lot more out of the airplane than about two 215. Okay. If you fl- went up to full tanks, 80,000, flew a supersonic loop, and then you, you had to come down and refuel again. The, and I'm sure the RSO in the back, obviously he's got his his to-do list of things that he's trying to to knock out. But unlike today, most of that stuff is just being captured and encapsulated in, in the aircraft systems and downloaded once you get to to base versus being data linked back. So uh, obviously there's a lot of crew coordination that goes on between you and the RSO to make sure everything gets done, correct? Correct. The In those days, we didn't have data link, as you, as you, you know, so correctly mentioned, and we were waiting for the, you know, the guys, the photo guys and specialists to get uh, everything downloaded when we got back on the ground, pull the film, pull the radar imagery, whatever the case was, uh, take a look at it, and then get it up to the people who who needed it at, uh, you know, higher headquarters. Yeah, it's fascinating. I, that is, I wish the plane was still flying today, you know? You, you and me both. Yeah, <laughs> yeah the, it was a... The, the nose bolted on and off, a big nose bolted on and off of four bolts. It, I make it oversimplifying the situation, yeah. but you could switch between uh, OBC, optical bar camera, and and radar imagery, depending on what the weather was in the take area. So if the weather went went south on you at a late date, then you could put the radar camera on if, if needed. Otherwise, you were taking optical pictures. Yeah, that was fascinating. I always loved the the story. Like, I don't know who it was, but over Libya, you know, where they were they're running, getting shot at. And I think by the time it was all said and done, they, they were over the published speed limit. Yeah. We operated. I think uh, there may have been some exaggeration uh, yeah. coming out of that particular story, but <laughs> 10%. You know, we operated on a compressor inlet temperature limit. And so you know, basically you could take the 
the jet up to whatever speed you could get out of it as long as that compressor inlet temperature was not exceeded. And that depended on OAT. It was amazing at 80,000 plus how much variance you got in the, in the temperature and the pressure altitude. Uh, I thought everything was pretty much standard once you got above the tropopause, but uh, it wasn't. You know, I saw some really, really abnormally cold temperatures, which was good because yeah. it made engines run, you know, more efficiently, and some darn warm temperatures, which was bad because it meant you were burning more fuel and had to watch the timeline really closely. Yeah, I guess that's something, again, that's not a consideration I've ever had. Really, it's been you know, a headwind or a tailwind is about as, you know, with the big crayon mark on the fuel sheet, how, <laughs> how, uh, exact I get with it. But if you're watching that, that's obviously going to change the calculus as far as, I mean, or I guess, would it change the calculus or was it that detailed that if it was an unexpected warmer temperature that, that, that was going to reduce your range? Well, you know, our, our meteorologist and, and, and the planning shop, a dedicated planning shop, you know, took a really good look at that and, of course, able to get weather data from weather balloons and all the things that we collect those pieces of data. So they usually had a good idea of what we were going to encounter. But if you hit something that was, you know, a long ways out of normal, we, we, we as a group, lost a few sorties because it, the, the, the fuel line just got too close to, uh, you know, being, you know, emergency fuel. So yeah, got said, okay, we got to get out of here now, cut this a little bit short and uh, get on back and get some gas. Well, that's what I'm sure the rule of thumb, you know, for the T38 hasn't changed much. There's slightly different intakes now, which I think, you know, for fuel burn per mi- you know, mile an hour, you, you know what you're going to get at different altitudes. Um, I assume the SR-71, that's probably what you were using a good, I mean, that's, you did it in F-16, although we have mission planning software, but. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, you, you, you pushed it up, uh, it accelerated, uh, bumped through the first mock by doing a push over there as you were climbing about, uh, above, just about 30,000 feet past the, you know, first mock and continuing to climb. And then from then on, watching the inlets, how they were scheduling and watching the fuel was probably the two gauges I spent. Okay. The largest amount of time looking yeah. at it in the cockpit yeah, in that true. 1960s yeah. round gauge cockpit. <laughs> right. <laughs> Going Mach 3, no big deal. Gosh. <laughs> Buckle up, folks. It's going to be a fun one. <laughs> it may not be fun, but it'll be fast. <laughs> right. And it'll be over quick. Yeah. As far as you know, landing and, and performance of the aircraft, Pretty easy plane to land, runway distance considerations, or piece of cake, yeah. piece of cake. Uh, nice big, huge delta wing there. Took uh, a good use of ground effect uh, when you were landing, so not a problem. Nice fifty-five foot drag chute that popped out on you know your full stop landing. So they wanted us, you know, have a minimum of eight thousand feet, but uh, five thousand feet would have done the trick if if you had to had to have it. You know, normally the chute came out normal deployment and you didn't have to worry about mashing the brakes too much. Just get on them lightly and uh, the jet would stop nicely in five or 6,000 feet. That's crazy. Well, that 5,000 foot runway required there for you probably helped uh, transition day 10, huh? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, talking about going from the fastest to one of the slowest. Right. <laughs> yeah, that cool. was, that was definitely a change, but it was, uh, I was lucky. Most guys that were in the program were senior majors or junior lieutenant colonels. So they're probably headed for headquarters, either, yeah. either you know, Omaha or back to the to Pentagon to work the programs from the, you know, the Pentagon offices there. So I was extremely fortunate to end up my career with another flying assignment after the SR. 
Uh, so were you, were you like a senior captain by the time you were done with your SR assignment? No, I was a junior LC. Okay. Yeah, I, it was that was a second to la, uh, to last assignment. So I was uh, had to had made uh, LC the year before I left it. How'd you swing the second? How'd you yeah the transition to A ten? Like you said, that's pretty fortunate. You just need to know the right four star. <laughs> it's all about who you know. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I was at Shepherd as a T thirty eight instructor, uh, okay. chief of the Sanavel shop. The two bullet at the technical training center there needed to have an IP to fly with the the, the gentleman, and, and he was a great gentleman that I was flying with. Didn't need my help at all flying a T thirty eight, but it was a rule in those days that there yeah. had to be an IP with a general officer. We got to be friends as much as a captain can be friends with a two-star right and he went on to be the usafi four-star and so he just pulled me over from the sr to, to the a10 there at bentwater yeah man yeah better lucky, be, lu- better lucky, be lucky man. Than, yeah better be lucky than good right you betcha <laughs> <laughs> i'm going on my two-star brain <laughs> <laughs> i love it yeah how was how was your assignments in the hog there i uh, it couldn't have been better. Flying the, the hog out of Bentwaters was just awesome. We had four operating locations uh, spread to north to south of Germany. So the idea was to to uh, probably block up the Fulda Gap when the Russian hordes came across with their tank and armor. And yeah. we were going to hopefully kill it uh, out there on the on the North German plain. So spent a lot of time in Germany, which was, was never bad. And uh, flying the hog around the UK was, was pretty darn nice also. Yeah, uh, Small World, I can't remember the gentleman's name now, but, you know, I was at Shaw. Uh, we had an F-16 mishap that it, a civilian plane and F-16 collided, but I was in the safety shop a few years after this. As I best, recall that. Yeah, Not best, the details, but I remember. Yeah, so tragic situation. Um, but the NTSB, when I was in the safety shop, I had to you know provide them some paperwork, but the investigator, I guess, had flown with you at Bentwater in the A-10. So, you know, it's, it was a truly, truly small world. That is a small world. That's six degrees of separation. Right. Yeah. So, uh, it is, it's one of those things that I, I definitely have learned, right? Because it doesn't matter if it's someone you come in contact with, you know, today you might not talk to them for five, 10, 15 years. Right. But, you know, hopefully you were a good person and a good dude. Cause well, the nice thing is we can not talk to each other for five or 10 years and then it's friendships spring right back up like they had never you know cooled yeah. off at all yeah prime example i mean you, know, you and i first met volunteer firefighting way back in the day I mean, that was probably 2005 2006 time frame and then obviously we've kind of kept in touch throughout the years but that's what I, that's what i love about the i mean my time in the air force is obviously the friendships you make there are people that i don't talk to for years at a time right but yeah you, know, you can send them a message pick up the phone and call them and you're instantly connected which is pretty and, cool and uh do a layover in his town and grab a pint and nothing's, uh, nothing's changed. Yeah, no, it's pretty <laughs> incredible. I mean, it's incredible. Just like, I mean, your career, I'm, I truly am fascinated. I'm a, I'll be honest, a little bit jealous, just the number of aircraft you've flown. Lucky, but good. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, it's pretty cool. So Les, I really do appreciate you joining me on the podcast today. I know people are going to be you know, fascinated about hearing about the SR 71 and your, and the, your entire aviation career. So thank you for your service and thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for your service, John. It was an honor to talk to you. Likewise. Again, thanks for listening today. If you have any questions, you can swing over to afterburnpodcast.com and submit them there. And if you're looking to support the podcast or jump to the front of the line for questions, swing over to Patreon. Again, you can find a link over on theafterburnpodcast.com. We'll see you in two weeks. The Afterburn Podcast is a proud supporter of Guns Gear Memorial Foundation.
helping our veterans and their families when they need it most. To learn more, visit gunsgarren.com slash rain.